Good afternoon. Hi, friends. Friends on the path. Um, often in our communities, when we come together, uh, we ask one of our elders to begin with a blessing for us. And I'm wondering if any of you who are in that um, community of elders would like to offer a blessing before the Dharma talk. It could be really any of us 70 or over as an elder. Any hands up? In, in that case, I might then ask the youngest member of our community. Well, Rebecca, I see you there. Would you offer us a blessing? Unmute yourself and offer a blessing. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, probably the last person to do this, but um, we just hope all of us will be able to find. We'll be blessed with peace and joy in our lives, regardless of outside circumstances, that we can find uh, peace in the midst of all the strife in the world and, uh, and that we can be a positive force um, on society. That's all. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I'm trying to organize it so I can see you all instead of my own visage. That's great. So thank you. So I wanted to follow up a little bit from Nollyway's beautiful talk last night um, by offering the framework that the Buddha described in the Abhidharma. It's been really helpful for me as, as a way how to hold suffering and the energies that um, uh, express that and what are the energies of liberation and how do we navigate our internal realities in that dynamic. And I wanted to start off with a story, a couple of stories. And one is that when I was in my 20s, I was um, traveling through southern Mexico. And I was with my, my partner at the time, and we'd landed in the small town very late and had found a hotel and had spoken to the um the receptionist and he gave us a room 
and we'd been on a bus for 24 hours. And so I remember taking half a sleeping pill. It was around 3 a.m. And I, in, at some point in that night, I remember struggling. It was like I was deep underwater, struggling, struggling to come to the surface. And I came to the surface and I found or felt this naked male body right on top of me. And I screamed and kicked and um, screamed at my partner, wake up, wake up. And he ran out of the door. And I looked for my Swiss army penknife. And I was ready to kill him. I grabbed my knife. I ran out of the door and I ran down the corridor. I don't know if I would have, but in those moments right after that, right after that, um, kicking him out of the bed, I was ready to kill him. And then I wanted to acknowledge that in a relationship, a uh, uh, another relationship, a long, longer term relationship. There was a moment when we were driving to San Francisco in a little VW bug where we got into a really intense argument. And I said, stop the car. And we stopped the car. We got out. It was on Route 128, um, going to 101. And she said something. We were screaming. And I lifted my hand to hit her. I was already in the Dharma, and it was shocking to me that in that moment I wanted to strike her. And then I want to also acknowledge that for a lot of my youth into my um uh, probably early 20s that I stole indiscriminately. And I'm sharing these stories because the energy of anger and hatred and of not understanding what I was doing when I was in actions that were harmful it was it was it was clear to me that i was struggling to find something and i was acting out the trauma that happened in my early childhood years in my family of origin that in the violations of my own integrity as a young girl, I didn't understand healthy boundaries and I didn't understand my path to where healing was. And it, I'm just picking up a couple of examples of many, many, many ways that I continue to act out the trauma that I experience, and maybe my karma, I, who knows. 
And that through a lot of hating, a lot of anger, a lot of righteous anger in my political work, a lot of polarization, it came to me, although in those moments of it coming to me, I wouldn't have said it this clearly, that hatred can never heal through hatred, only through love. And it seems so simple and yet so incredibly difficult. And so for a lot of my early childhood, I was in confusion. I was in confusion of where is the truth? Like that felt like such an important question to me, especially, and I think I mentioned, I've mentioned this for some of you who've heard my Dharma talks before, because as a survivor of sexual abuse that was totally denied, I kept questioning my own reality. Like what is true and what isn't true? What is the path of healing and what isn't the path of healing? And to say that in the woundedness and confusion that I experience many times going in and out, it felt like being more angry, being more hating, caring less, felt like the right path. And that when I heard about love or um, or spiritual practices of peace and prayer and um, wearing white and chanting, I felt nauseous. I, it actually felt revolting to me. So, and, and, there were moments of deep joy when I danced. And I loved hearing music, all kinds of music. And I, and I loved the energy of being in community, dancing and singing. And when my parents were arrested and there was just I was nine and I, um, and, uh, at this point, uh, my foster brother wasn't in the house. There was me, nine years old, and my, um, my three sisters who are younger than me, and that's who was in the house. My first urge was to go to one of my younger sisters because they were awake while the arrest had been happening. It was like in the middle of the night and to say, are you okay? Because she was crying and hold her. And so acknowledging these medley of energies that are living inside of us and I had no idea how to hold them and I had no idea how to understand them. And so this framework that I finally encountered in the Abhidharma, it gave me this 
this understanding of so much in my past life and how to support myself now and on the path in creating the conditions for healing and freedom and liberation. So the Buddha described two capacities or wirings in each human being. And he said that when he saw into or discerned into all human beings after his enlightenment, that every And one was the capacity for confusion and suffering. And the other was the capacity for liberation. And that seems like so obvious. And yet, how many times have we forgotten that? That we have both capacities. The capacity for suffering rests and is um, uh, fueled by one particular energy, and that's called ignorance. And ignorance is the quality in the mind that confuses and clouds so that it is impossible to discern what is true. That is, where there is suffering and where we can heal suffering. And I feel so educated over and over again by so many people in our government for clearly showing me what ignorance is. I mean, not only in my own mind, but mirroring back to me. This is a mind that cannot discern the truth the truth of freedom and liberation. And that's not because those people or we are evil or bad or immoral. It is because there is this energy in the mind at the moment that obscures truth, and it's called ignorance. And when there is ignorance in the mind, there are three other qualities that are always there. And one is the mind is agitated. That is that it can't settle in to discern something to connect. It's always sort of like this. Well, we know that because maybe you don't, but I certainly know it very well, that mind that is agitated or anxious. And then there is the incapacity to feel remorse at harming both in the body and in the mind. They're two different qualities. When those four qualities are present in the mind, comes that comes all the other qualities that do not create the conditions for freedom. The psychological expression of this ignorance is the experience of feeling homeless, of not fitting in, of not feeling like, yeah, I'm grooving, I'm here, I'm like right here connected. 
and part of the family of life. It's the experience of the axle not fitting into the hole of a wheel. And so it, the wheel doesn't go like slipping, 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 which is one of the definitions of suffering, like not fitting in for a smooth drive. all the way to the extremes of suffering. This feeling homeless or not fitting in or feeling profoundly insufficient and inadequate of, of feeling like no matter what we do, nothing quite is enough. Those experiences are the psychological experiences of ignorance. In their expression then, the mind moves in attachment to try to cling onto pleasant experiences as a way to alleviate those experiences. And for me, that is such a beautiful expression of privilege where we are privileged, where we move in those privileged locations, whether English is our first language or around race or um, class or ableism, where that movement towards the ownership and entitlement of certain resources and pleasant experiences, where we're, we're not cognizant of it. There's, there's a confusion in that because there's ignorance there. So that movement towards clinging, craving for pleasant experiences and pushing away unpleasant experiences. Or splitting the scene and just not knowing where we are and what's happening and what's going on. That delusion. And then the Buddha also names others like sloth, torpor. I mentioned agitation or anxiety and doubt. You know, revenge, um, um, comparing mind, um, um, fear, anger, hatred, anxiety. Um, depression, um, giving up, hopelessness, all of these are rooted in this confusion. And that doesn't mean to say, again, I just want to reiterate it, they are bad per se. It's that they are not in themselves the constituent conditions for the mind and heart to liberate themselves. And so when the Buddha says in right effort, abandon the unwholesome energies, which is this network of energies, and I wouldn't ask you to abandon them, but I'm asking you to abandon them because you can, and by doing so, you are creating the conditions for freedom. Cultivate the beautiful energies. And I wouldn't ask you to cultivate them, but by doing so in the conditions for the beautiful energies, you are creating the conditions for the ending of suffering.
So when, when I find myself in dynamics of controlling or in um, um, agitation, I feel so supported in this understanding that the energies in themselves are okay, but the thinking that feeds them is always distorted by ignorance and never brings about healing. So as I go through those stories about different people, about myself, oh, I mean, you know, all the stories, I'm not good enough, I'm not a good enough teacher, for example, if I give a lousy Dharma talk, or, um, uh, uh, oh my God, why isn't this and that happening? And I see what's in my, I see what's happening. I am so, I feel so happy to know that how I'm discerning reality is distorted and I can drop it and drop into my body and hold the feeling. What is it that I'm feeling? Clearly in that moment, I'm not at home. I'm not connected. I'm homeless, moving out in a habitual movement to anchor, whether it's actually, interestingly enough, for those who are of us who are aversive, we anchor in what's aversive. It doesn't have to be only in the pleasant. You know, there's so, there's so many times when I reflect on, um, that knowing of how ignorance isn't true. And it's, it's, it's clear in the ways that we have been targeted in our community because in this location as a queer, lesbian, feminist, I feel beautiful. And when, when in my last marriage, my partner's family prayed for us to save our souls and wouldn't let us be next to, I wouldn't let us hang out with their children, I knew it had nothing to do with me. And everything to do with a mind that was distorted in ignorance, holding on to ideas that had no truth and reality to them. And that is deeply liberating. So sometimes it's not clear, not clear to me, in my stories and in my thoughts and in my feelings, what's true and what isn't. So I want to describe the other capacity now. And the other capacity are the beautiful energies. And they begin with faith. Not faith in 
in a particular person, though faith in, as Nali we said, the beautiful energies of the Buddha, faith in the beautiful energies, yes, that's faith. The, um, the knowing that when there are beautiful energies in our mind and heart, they only bring peace and well-being in the ending of suffering. It's that faith. Faith in the power of the beautiful energies to bring healing. And they are mindfulness and loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity and the factors of the Eightfold Path, right understanding and right intention, right speech, being ethical, generosity, patience, truthfulness, wisdom, that's right understanding, um, generosity, did I say that? So the beautiful energies. There's one energy in particular that I've noticed for myself that um, uh, has been my greatest teacher. For those of us who have aversive personalities, that is the traditional antidote, and that's loving kindness. And I notice that when there isn't love or caring in my mind, that I'm in the wiring of ignorance. And I don't mean a romantic love. And I don't mean like gooey. I mean that, that sort of fundamental caring for myself, this moment, my body, you, the world. This, this kind of respect and honoring of whatever is happening moment after moment. And if I don't feel that, then that helps me to understand that I'm not in alignment with my deepest commitment to liberate myself and others. It could be, it could be that that energy is embedded in the way we're being mindful. Someone asked me that question when I said, sometimes to me, mindfulness and loving kindness feel like the same thing. And it reminds me, well, uh, it reminds me of the story that, that I love to tell of, um, Kalu Rinpoche, um, when he was being shown into the Boston Aquarium and he went from one tank to the other. And each time he stopped in front of the tank, he would tap on the glass. Even though there was a big sign in English and Spanish saying, please do not tap on the glass. And so the student with him said, Rinpoche, what are you doing? And he said, I'm tapping for the intention of these sentient beings that I might bless them. 
And that's how I hope to always embody mindfulness, this tapping on myself, saying, I'm here. I'm here. Let me bring my presence to you as a blessing. I'm here to bless you, Arena. And that feels like such a profound antidote and so healing. Apart from the path that I lived earlier on in my life. So this mindfulness and loving kindness together, it's different from how I used to think of mindfulness as a basic attention. Like when I'm driving a car, I know there's a traffic light in front of me. I stop the car. But am I really noticing the life of the traffic light, of the life of the cars and the beings around me? Do I really know, know, like in that embodied way, that I'm driving really for my life? If it's to the store for food, if it's to a retreat for liberation, if it's to pick someone up for love. So, no, I'm just in basic attention. That's different than mindfulness, which is this capacity to know, but to know in a deep relatedness. So it's not superficial, like, you know, like a boomerang, just or like, you know, when you throw stones on a water that's skipping. It's not like that skip, like touching and then touching and I'm off and I'm off. It's like that, that knowing that is deep and drops down. That is oriented towards our well-being by the wish to know our experience, to companion our experience, to bear witness to it. And in that way, it doesn't matter what our experience is. Because it could be rage, and yet, hi, honey, I'm here. I'm here holding you. I want to give you your life, honor and respect you. Or it could be that deep connection with life that knows no words. That feels like we're living at the heart of life. And I'm there. I want, I'm there bearing witness, companioning, knowing wholeheartedly. This is the experience that's happening. In that way, there isn't any experience that is a bad experience when it's met with these beautiful energies. And this feels really, really important to me for someone and maybe like some of you as well or many of us, who have held so much suffering that if I can't access that caring and that kind of presence, 
then I know it's not the right time to turn towards my suffering because then I'm just overwhelmed and I'm, I'm in the wiring of lost in my confusion and reactivity around my suffering. There is a, a tradition, I, don't, they, I think they called the Tritiana. Um, they were the Buddhist Western order that was um, started by, um, I've forgotten his name, a gay man actually in uh, England. It's very popular in, in Europe and, and England, I mean in Britain. Although I shouldn't say Britain because of the Irish and the Welsh and the Scottish in that part of the world. And he said, I don't teach suffering and the end of suffering until people are steeped in loving kindness. And I understand that. Not, I mean, just as a guideline of, am I resourced enough to turn towards my confusion, the places that continue to be deeply wounded inside of me that are, can be triggered by different events or different people? That feels like a really important question on our part. Am I situated enough in those beautiful energies, in that wiring and capacity that I can turn and hold myself in. Because I have done long retreats, three-month retreats at Insight Meditation Society where no teacher told me that. And they just kept saying, try to be mindful of the suffering. Forget it. Forget it. It was impossible. I lost it. And so it feels really important to me. And so then that for us to know our capacities. And if we don't feel that capacity and that resilience, then to turn towards the practices that strengthen that capacity and resilience. And one of them, one of the most beautiful ones is cultivating joy, which Ever way we cultivate joy, whether it's singing or dancing or gardening or swimming or walking. And we, and we might think, oh, that isn't Dharma, but it is because it strengthens the heart and mind. There is a traditional practice of cultivating joy, which I have found incredibly helpful. And that is to turn towards our beautiful qualities and to keep acknowledging them and recognizing them. So we could, for example, take a moment right now and remember one movement of generosity in your heart. You gave someone something special. You picked up the phone to someone when you were tired, but you wanted to give your presence and friendship to them. You saw someone with a heavy bag and offered to carry it. You appreciated someone, even when it was a little difficult. We, there have been, I am, guessing 
because it's been true for me, countless moments of giving something. And in this practice, the Buddha said, recognize your generosity, acknowledge it, and keep, even if you have just one moment of generosity, it's fine to keep going back to that and saying, I felt that moment of freely giving and how beautiful it was and generosity May you continue to grow and strengthen inside of me. May you guide me. May you nourish me. Any time you notice yourself doing anything, holding the door open for someone, taking a foot, a foot back so you're maintaining six-foot distancing, any expression of caring, of honoring, of generosity, of faith, of remembering your own capacity. The Buddha said to acknowledge and to keep acknowledging over and over again as a distinct practice of cultivating joy. So we can cultivate joy through mindfulness and the purity of connecting to the experience. We can cultivate joy through concentration and the unification of mind. And we can cultivate joy through this contemplation. And the Buddha said we can also cultivate joy through contemplating other people who inspire that in us. So... For example, Bishop Tutu, who, you know, grew up in a very traditional um, African village in South Africa, um, where the church was very homophobic. He said a number of years ago, if heaven and we don't let the gay, lesbian, bisexual, trans people in, then I want to live in hell. Just aligning himself with our community. That that beautiful generosity. I mean, just one example of the many that um, uh, that uh, he held in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And um, uh, I know that I have so many stories and I, and I want to close, I want to close soon so that we have time to go into our interview group. So, so maybe I will just leave it that contemplating those people that, um, exhibit that for us. And, uh, uh, Berta Casares, um, is really close to my heart. I, I knew her. Her brother and it was part of an organization that went to different countries in Central and South America to work as allies, um, and to, especially with indigenous people who were trying to, to stop the Lemke Dam from flooding the, um, those lands there and 
the government and the um, U USA and other European countries had um, sponsored the murder of a hundred activists before her. So she said right before she was murdered, I know they're going to murder me, but I don't care because I can't not fight for the dignity of my people. That beautiful mind state I go back to over and over. May it inspire me to recommit over and over again to those beautiful energies. So let me end with one of my favorite poems by Joy Harjo, the first indigenous poet laureate. And it's called For Calling the Spirit Back from Wandering the Earth in Its Human Feet. Put down that bag of potato chips, that white bread, that bottle of pop. Turn off that cell phone, computer, and remote control. Open the door, then close it behind you. Take a breath. Offered by friendly winds, they travel the earth, gathering essences of plants to clean. Give it back with gratitude. If you sing, it will give your spirit lift to fly to the star's ears and back. Acknowledge this earth who has cared for you since you were a dream, planting itself precisely within your parents' desire. Let your moccasin feet take you to the encampment of the guardians who have known you before time, who will be there after time. They sit before the fire that has been there without time. Let the earth stabilize your post-colonial jitters. Be respectful of small insects, birds, and animal people who accompany you. Ask their forgiveness for the harm we humans have brought down upon them. Don't worry. The heart knows the way through. They, though there may be high-rises, interstates, checkpoints, armed soldiers, massacres, wars, and those who will despise you because they despise themselves. The journey might take you a few hours, a day, a year, a few years, a hundred thousand or even more. Watch your mind. Without training, it might run away and leave your heart for the immense human feast set by the thieves of time. Do not hold regrets. When you find your way to the circle, to the fire kept burning by the keepers of your soul, you will be welcomed. You must clean yourself with cedar, sage, or other healing plants. 
Let go the pain you're holding in your mind, your shoulders, your heart, all the way to your feet. Let go the pain of your ancestors to make way for those who are heading in our direction. Ask for forgiveness. Call upon the help of those who love you. These helpers take many forms. Animal, element, bird, angel, saint stone or ancestor. Call your spirit back. It may be caught in corners and creases of shame, judgment and human abuse. You must call in a way that your spirit will want to return. Speak to it as you would to a beloved child. Welcome your spirit back from its wandering. It may return in pieces and tatters. Gather them together. They will be happy to be found after being lost for so long. Your spirit will need to sleep a while after it is bathed and given clean clothes. Now you can have a party. Invite everyone you know who loves and supports you. Keep room for those who have no place else to go. Make a giveaway, and remember, keep the speeches short. Then you must do this. Help the next person on their way through the dark. May the nourishment of the earth be yours. May the clarity of light be yours. May the fluency of the ocean be yours and the protection of the ancestors be yours. And so may a slow wind work these words of love around you, an invisible cloak to mind your life. Thank you.